Friends, it's a joy to be in the pulpit this evening and uh, to be bringing God's word from Isaiah to you. Uh, thankful to Weitz for his uh, reading in that passage in Psalm 102. Quite honestly, that psalm is a psalm that captures the heart of what God's people could have very possibly been feeling as as we turn our attention to Isaiah 45. Um, you know, I, I wrote in our church newsletter not not too long ago, uh, about a book that has deeply impacted me uh, on the book of Isaiah called Strength for the Weary. It's a series of sermons that uh, one of my mentors and pastors, Derek Thomas, gave. There's been free copies available in the book nook. I'm not sure if there are any more there, but I'm indebted to a lot of what he has taught me about the book of Isaiah and how it is meant to comfort God's people. And so uh, as we come to God's word tonight, um, much of what I've studied, much of what I've learned has come from uh, his encouragement. And it's, it's a series of messages that he gave on just extremely comforting passages that, that extend to God's people, obviously throughout the ages, because God's word goes on forever and ever. Uh, but it's, it's about God's sure and steadfast purposes, even in the midst of wearying seasons. And so... Um, with that being said, uh, I, I would encourage you, if you have not picked it up, uh, to pick up a copy today um, and uh, to know that uh, this sermon tonight comes heavily influenced by the, the work of a master craftsman and brother in the faith, Derek Thomas. But um, our passage is Isaiah 45, and Isaiah 45, I'm actually going to pick up in Isaiah 44, chapter tw- or verse 24, so if you want to turn back a little bit, I don't know how it's printed for you uh, in your bulletin, it's on page... Um, uh, 605 and 607, but Isaiah 45, or, or Isaiah 44, I'll pick up in verse 24. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you treasures, the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that, is I, that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. 
I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. (coughs) Excuse me. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens. And I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall rebuild my city and set my exiles free. Not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare What is right? Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared of of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior there is. None besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. (coughs) The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever, friends. Let us pray and ask his help one more time as we seek to interpret this tonight. Father in heaven, we come uh, to a passage in scripture written to your people from before the time they ever went into exile. And we come with what seems like such a far distance, wondering what could you say to us 
who are in uh, different situations today, and yet we ask that by your Spirit's help that you would help us to transcend the ages to understand what you spoke to your people in the day in which it was spoken. And we ask, Father, that you would illuminate our hearts by your Spirit's ministry to help us understand uh, how you intend to accomplish a sure salvation for your people, as this passage promises us that you will. And so, Father, as we come tonight, would you help us to understand the mysteries of your great sovereignty contained in this beautiful word? And would you protect us from error as we seek to discern it and expose where we have worshipped what's false instead of what's true in you. We ask that you do this in Christ's name for the sake of his glory. Amen. Got a little tickle in my throat, sorry. So, being a mathematics major in college, I actually, um, one of my favorite artists to this day is M.C. Escher. Escher was a, uh, an artist who would... Uh, he, he would make various patterns into beautiful designs. He um, also was famous for his work that just had these sort of mind-bending perspectives in them. If you've not uh, Googled M.C. Escher uh, recently, you should. Um, because it was his perspective uh, framing work that actually changed the way that we understand how perspective is perceived in drawings. Um, he drew pictures using a technique called trompe l'oeil. It's a French term. I, I'm not going to pretend to actually know uh, what that was. I had to look it up on Wikipedia. But it's, it's a technique that's used on draw, drawing highly realistic optical illusions of three-dimensional space and objects on a two-dimensional surface. It essentially is that kind of optical illusion, kind of like magic eye, where it jumps out at the page, or it has just these mind-bending perspectives in it that make you wonder if you're really seeing what the artist drew. It's based entirely on a, a genre, based entirely on the illusion created in the gaze of a spectator. Uh, for example, some of his most famous works are a, a waterfall that flows into its own source, a house of stairs where people are walking up and down at the same time and sideways uh, left and right at the same time. And depending on how you turn your head, presents a new perspective each time. And uh, one of his most famous one uh, is uh, the a set of stairs uh, that only ever take you up. I mean, many contemporary movie scenes try to depict some of his genius and how he captured geometric shapes in a form of optical illusions to try and pay ode to some of his creativity. And similarly tonight, as we turn our attention to God's word, there's a mind-bending perspective that Isaiah is trying to paint for us. One that jumps off the pages of Scripture and challenges us in how we understand God and his sovereign ability to save his people. The problem for God's people is that their perspective is limited to the fact that God seems to, has hidden, to have hidden his ways from them, even as he's decreed that he would save them. And unless you and I pay close attention to the details and look up close at the way that Isaiah is painting a picture of God's sovereignty, we'll miss out on understanding how God's sovereign power to save is meant to bless us as his people too. 
We need a perspective shift, just like God's people did in that day. And God is the masterpiece artisan or artist who is painting a picture through his prophet to help us understand how he's utterly and totally in control, despite what your circumstances say. In fact, as Isaiah paints this picture, it exposes the people's shallow understanding of God's purposes. But it's, it's only when we look closely at the treasures in this beautiful text that we'll see it's, it's only when we worship the surprising and sovereign God that we can learn to hope in his hiddenness even while he works out our sure salvation. That's what Isaiah wants us to see tonight as he's painting this perspective for us. It's, it's only when we worship the surprisingly sovereign God that we can hope in his hiddenness even while he works out our sure salvation in a day that's uncertain. And there's two points that we're going to see that through in this passage. We're going to see it uh, through a surprising deliverer that Isaiah foretells. And he's going to go to an incredulous people. So he's the surprising deliverer of an incredulous people in verses 1 to 13. And then in verses 14 through 25, Isaiah paints a portrait of the sure salvation of our sovereign king. So surprising deliverer and yet a sure salvation that he's accomplishing for his people. And the reason I wanted to turn my attention to Isaiah tonight is just, it's called the fifth gospel. I mean, the, the writers of the New Testament uh, called it that. It, it, it is God's good news to his people in the Old Testament. And this passage in particular was written about 150 years before it ever could be fulfilled. It's a predictive prophecy. I'll say that a couple times. But Isaiah itself is a book that its first chapters deal with the message of God's judgment to his wayward people in verses 1 to 39. And then in the section in which we find ourselves tonight, we're, we're in, a, in a place where God is talking about his mercy that remains for the remnant in chapters 40 through 55. And so all through Isaiah, the first 40 chapters, you hear this story of how God is bringing discipline and chastisement and judgment on his people. He's going to sovereignly work out so that all the nations of the world, even his people, are disciplined under his wrath for their disobedience to his, uh, as, as his wayward people. And yet he's still going to pursue mercy for the remnant that remain after his wrath has come. This book of Isaiah is called the book of comfort. It extends to the second half of Isaiah. It's where we get some of those beautiful predictive prophecies of Christ as the suffering servant. But it comes to people who are still settled in their defiance to God. People who have not yet learned to let God define himself to his wayward people. And it came, uh, chapters 40 to 55, in the last few years of Isaiah's ministry uh, as a prophet to God's people, when they had already settled their disposition that they would just wouldn't listen to him. And so what God does in the last few, few years of Isaiah's life is he says, okay, instead of judgment, we're going to preach comfort to my people. And that's where this passage comes from. And in Isaiah chapter 42 through 48, there's two problems that God's people are facing. Part of God's judgment is that he's taken them away into exile. He's let foreign nations conquer them so that they sit uh, at, but they're going to sit, sorry. They're going to sit 
in exile for a number of years outside of the land where God wanted them to dwell. And the question is, is how will he solve the problems of their spiritual idolatry that led them here? And how will he solve their political problems to actually get them back home? That's what chapters 42 through 48 are about. As God's people have been carried away in exile, uh, chapters 42 and 43 through 48, God shows first that the spiritual problem that got them into this predicament is going to be solved because the Lord himself will deliver them. He tells them that in Isaiah 43 to 44. He will save and renew them once again and solve their spiritual problem of idolatry. That's why if you go home tonight and you read the comparison uh, uh, of the folly of idolatry earlier in chapter 44, you see that God is actually contesting with a spiritually wayward people who can't yet understand the goodness of this, this God who wants to save them. And it's one thing for God to solve the spiritual problem of his people. In this passage where he's talking about Cyrus, that's what the subheading in chapter 45 of my ESV says, as God's instrument, there's a political problem that they need too. If they were God's people, they were meant to dwell in the land that he intended for them, the, the promised land. And if they're far away from that land, how are they going to get back? So God can fulfill his vision to them of making them a nation to bless all the other nations of the world. Especially when they've been taken away into exile because of their own sin and because it was actually God's fulfillment of his promises to them. So the Lord begins to remind them, beginning in chapter 44, verse 24, of who he is. And he shows how he's going to solve this problem. And that brings us to our first point. He he shows a surprising deliverer to an incredulous people. But he starts by pointing to himself. In chapter 44, verse 24, he reminds the people of who he is. He says, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer. That's a word in the Old Testament that, uh, I mean, many of you may be familiar with it. It was the, it was the word in Hebrew, goel. It was related, a related family member who would come along and ensure the continuation of a family's connection to the land that God gave when there was no heir to make sure that a property continued on in a family of God's people. But when it's used of God, there's a very common usage prominent in the Psalms and prophets that says God is Israel's redeemer who's going to stand up for his people and vindicate them. And it's said with a hint of understanding that God's doing this as the father of his children. That's what redeemer means and how God uses it. Uh, he's, he's taking ownership and redeeming his people. There's usually a price that's not cited when God is saying he's the redeemer of his people. But there is the idea of judgment on Israel's oppressors included as a ransom when God calls himself a goel. But he's not just saying, I'm the redeemer. He's saying, I'm also the Lord who made all things. I'm the creator. I stretched out and spread out the heavens. Kind of like a picture of God who shakes out a blanket. He's saying that I pitched a tent for myself to dwell in, and I'm the creator who made that place. I'm going to make sure it intends uh, to match what my creative design intended for it. He's able to create new possibilities. He says uh, he's the one who keeps his promises. He, he, he says he frustrates the plans of liars. He shames the diviners who try to control and discern his purposes. He turns back the wise, showing that they really aren't that wise. He shows he's truly in control, and he can't be treated like someone can't control him. 
And he also goes on to say in chapter 44, verse 27, he draws up deliverance imagery. He says, I'm the one who said to the deep waters, be dry and I will dry up your rivers. That's Exodus imagery. That's, that would have called to mind God's people's memory of the fact that God was the God who had parted the waters when they were trapped and there seemed like there was no other way out. He was the one who delivered them when there wasn't another way. And then God actually says how he's going to deliver in this passage. He says, I'm the one who said to the waters, dry up your rivers, but who also says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will fulfill all my purpose, rebuilding my city. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. God goes on to say in the early parts of chapter uh, 45, uh, he calls Cyrus his anointed. That's the word for Messiah in Hebrew. And up until this point, in the passage, God's people kind of would have just been nodding along. Like, this, this was a passage that was intended for people who were in exile and awaiting for God to bring them home. And they're, they're remembering, yes, God is the deliverer. He's the redeemer. He's the creator who did all these things. So we should be able to trust him to deliver us and bring us back home. And then it's like, the screeching sound of tires, like the, like stop, because all of a sudden, God says, Cyrus is his shepherd, and Cyrus is his Messiah, who he's going to accomplish this through, who's going to rebuild the city and reestablish the temple. He goes on to say that Cyrus is the one whose right hand God holds, who will subdue nations before. He will loose the belt of kings and open doors before him so that no gate can be closed against him. He tells Cyrus, I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. There's no treasure that can be kept from you, no secret place that will not be turned over to my Messiah, Cyrus. And God's people, all they hear in their heads as God is saying this through his prophet is the screeching of tires, like, hold the brakes. What happened? You were supposed to bring us home, but who's this Cyrus guy? Cyrus was actually a Persian king. He was a Persian king who defeated Babylon, who were the very oppressors who had taken God's people away into exile. And God is saying, I'm actually going to take one of your oppressors and make them your deliverer. How would, how would you respond if the people who had carried you away into exile, who took you away from your home, and who said you no longer had the right to be there, but you had to live under their rule, and you were no longer God's special people because our God told us to carry you away. Our king told us to carry you away. How would you feel if God appointed that person to be your deliverer? That's what God is saying here. God says, I'm going to appoint a pagan king to actually bring you back home. One of your oppressors is going to be the Messiah that I appoint. 
And what's happening in Isaiah is, like I said, this is a predictive prophecy. God is telling his people before they're ever carried away into exile how he's actually going to bring them back, how he's going to get them home. And he's telling them it's going to come through a pagan, Gentile, false-worshipping king. That doesn't seem to make sense. And that's why God's people respond in such an incredulous way. If you look in verses 8 through 13, after God says he's going to do all these things, he, he, he states what the fruit of that is going to be in a vision of, 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 of heaven breaking forth and showering out righteousness in verse 8. That, that, uh, that his purposes are going to be so grand that the righteousness uh, or, or the right ways that God's working through this, his salvation will bear fruit and the earth will cause everything to sprout because of what the Lord is doing through this pagan king. But his people are incredulous. They say to him, what are you doing? How are you working this way? Like, don't you realize what's deficient about you, the potter, doing this with us, the clay? Like, can't you see that your jar doesn't have any handles? Or they say, it's like a child saying to his father, Dad, what's going on? Israel can't understand the ways of God in bringing them home. And it makes you wonder, why would God's people have questioned God's purposes in this way? Well, Isaiah, uh, there's an Isaiah scholar, Alec Mochier, who said it this way, their grousing had real substance. To be told that exile will end through a pagan king and their homegoing will be as a still subject people with a city and temple rebuilt by his direction and with no reference to God's true king David being the one who was restored. They would have thought they were even worse off than before. God's people are so flummoxed by what God is doing that even his deliverance seems like it's leaving them worse off than before. Because for God to call Cyrus his anointed, literally his Messiah, that was a term that was associated with Israel's kings throughout the ages. It was this, and it seemed as if God was moving on from his purposes, his promises that he made to David to create a line through which all the nations of the earth would be blessed and a house where he would always have a son ruling over them. And it feels to Israel as if God is just throwing that all away through this deliverance. But when you look at the way that God answers his people, he gives three reasons for why he's doing this. If you look at verses 4 through 6, he says, I'm actually doing this for the sake of my servant Jacob, the one who I call by your name, the one I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. God's demonstrating that there is no other God. He's, he's showing them that this God who redeemed them, who created them, 
is still working his purposes out. Even when it seems confusing to his people. And he's doing it for the sake of the knowledge that the whole world, he says in verse 6, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there's none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. That phrase, I am the Lord and there is no other, is repeated four times throughout this passage. And what God is doing in showing his people his power to deliver them through even a pagan king is he's showing his utter control over all the events of history. Events that would make them seem as if God had totally forgotten his purposes. If you go back to the psalm that we read this, this, uh, this evening, God, why does it, please don't hide your face from me. That's how they felt. Isaiah even says, truly, you're a God who hides himself. We'll get to that in just a minute. But God is working his purposes out even when his people can't fully comprehend that he's working them out for their deliverance. Friends, does God's work ever confuse you in this way? When you try to read the lens of God's providential control of all your circumstances in your life, there's so many times in our lives where it feels like his purposes are just like nilch and zero. Like, like as if God has forsaken any intention to actually bless us as he said he would. And yet, it's in times like that that God is often working still to accomplish his deliverance for us. And it frequently comes through means that we never expected and never would have expected. All because God wants you to know his utter sovereign control over history. He, he repeats that in verse 12 and 13. He says, I'm the one who made the earth and created it. I'm the one who stretched out the heavens. God's going back into the very words that he started to remind them of in chapter 44. Because he's sandwiching this really confusing reality of the coming salvation in between twin statements of his sovereign rule over all the earth. And the heartbeat of this passage comes in verse 7. As God's trying to help his people understand, I'm the one who forms light and creates darkness. I cause flourishing and even create calamity. I'm the one who does it all. Friends, is your grasp of God's sovereign purposes big enough to help him see that he's even in control and what feels absolutely calamitous. God would have us understand tonight, friends, that in those moments where our lives feel most out of control, he's actually the one who's sovereignly still working his deliverance in really surprising ways. And what it requires of us is that we never stop hoping in his ability to deliver. Because God's people... We're probably on the verge of doing that. But this goes further too, friends. It shows us that God can even use really unlikely people to deliver us. A pagan king who came to power. Cyrus, uh, in, in his statement of uh, 
Who actually won him the battle? I mean, Ezra 1 records Cyrus' statement that Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, has told me to send them home. But in the Cyrus cylinder, which is unearthed from history, it's an artifact, he gave credit to the Babylonian god Marduk. Cyrus didn't even come to know the God who was using him to deliver. At least we can't be certain that he did. And yet God is still accomplishing his purposes through this idolatrous pagan king. And it goes to show you what Barry Webb taught us, that there's an important lesson here which the very placement of this passage serves to drive home. Not only is God the sovereign one who's utterly working his purposes out in his people's lives, even when they can't discern it, It also teaches us that God may disapprove of idolatry, but use an idolater for some good purpose. The fact that he uses someone in a specific way does not mean he approves of that person's total lifestyle. But it means that we should neither stand in judgment on God's actions or draw wrong conclusions from them, but praise him for his sovereignty. God's design in this passage, friends, is to give us a refuge under which we can rest all of our lives and days. But that's not all he wants us to see. And very briefly, the second thing he wants us to see is the sure salvation of this sovereign one. That's verses 14 through 25 of this passage. Even after his people have questioned him, God restates his purposes to them in verses 14 to 25. And there's two Thus says the Lord that framed this second half of this passage. The first word of the Lord comes in verses 14 through 17 where he says, All the wealth of the powers of the world will be sent to you and they will follow you and they will actually be sent over to you in chains and bow down to you. And they will plead with you saying, Surely God is in you and there is no other no God besides him. The very statement that God has been echoing to his people, I am the Lord and there is no other, will become the source of foreign nations' pleas for salvation, for how God will certainly deliver his people. Because what God is doing through Cyrus, he's saying, is going to echo out into the world So that even after Cyrus fails, it can't be stopped to note how God's salvific purposes for his people will continue on until all of their oppressors bow before him. He goes on and for the second word, he says, Thus says the Lord who created the heavens and formed the earth. That second word uh, comes in 18 through 25 and it reassures once again that God, the creator and redeemer, will accomplish the purposes which he made his word to fu- world to fulfill. And it's something that will echo out into an invitation to all nations who find themselves at odds. God reaffirms the work of this pagan king, and it will bear out fruit of his eternal promises that he had actually made to David where all the nations of the earth will come under the king of heaven's purposes and find refuge in his name. The world will be submitted to God and his purposes that begin with his special people. 
And they will all find salvation in his name. Only in the Lord, this passage ends, shall it be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were sensed against him. And the Lord, the offspring of Israel, shall be justified and shall glory. Friends, God answers his complaining and unbelieving people with the sure statements of his purposes to fulfill all that he had promised to them. But there's a gem in this passage that shows us why he's accomplishing this deliverance in this surprising way. And that gem comes in verses 15 to 17 where Isaiah probably breaks in as he observes God's purposes and says, Surely you're a God who hides himself. O God of Israel, the Savior, all of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together, but Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. How do you associate God hiding himself? Typically, we associate that with feeling abandoned by God. Or feeling, if you echo back to the garden... God hiding himself, uh, not, well, not God hiding, Adam and Eve hiding themselves from God because they didn't think they could stand in his presence. They were hidden from the Lord, and in the temple later on, they were, he was hidden, his glory was hidden in the holy place. We can tend to think of God's hiding himself in negative terms. But what Isaiah is doing in these songs of praise is he's actually praising that God doesn't work the ways that you and I think he does. That is, purposes of salvation are often bigger than you can ever dream or imagine them to be. Because if God, or the way that God reveals his purpose to us often seems so confusing to us because of how we actually associate his purposes with the work of an idol. We think of God in terms of a deity that we can do with as we please. And yet God is saying, I will not reveal myself to you in a way that reinforces the way that you might treat me like an idol. But I actually hide myself from you in purposes that you cannot fully grasp. As we sang earlier, And God moves in a mysterious way. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. God hides himself, friends, that he might not be found in the ways that associate him with a false god. He hides himself because he knows that we need to understand his utter uniqueness. He refuses to be defined by how his people would dictate deliverance. Because in all the ways that you and I might say, God, would you please save us? It only goes skin deep. And yet God is saying, I intend to deliver you totally. Even in ways that confuse you. Because my sovereign purposes will prevail. And I will be seen and be glorified by my people 
as the one in whom is found righteousness and strength because God wants to be the good king and ruler of his people. And he will settle for no false portraits of what false deities present themselves that we should believe about him. But he invites us to find refuge in the hiddenness of his ways. Because often it's in his hidden ways he's accomplishing an even more sure salvation. And think about this. Is this not the way that God's true Messiah, Jesus, worked? The one who delayed in three days for the utter display of God's glory in his friend's life when his friend Lazarus was suffering. Jesus refused, even though he knew Lazarus was sick and it was unto death. And yet he delayed in the place that he was three days, knowing full well that he could heal him. Because he wanted to display the glory of God in Lazarus and everyone else's lives. The Savior who, in the moment where he is hidden behind a veil of shame, suffering on a cross is actually the greatest moment of his victory and heaven's resounding defeat of our enemies, friends. Because this Savior is the one in whom God has hidden himself fully and finally to be revealed and known by his people so that our praise over his sovereign salvation echoes into all of eternity. Friends, it's only when we grasp a picture of a God that's as sovereign as this that we will forsake false pictures of him like the makers of idols and plead with him and turn to be saved and find a sure salvation for our souls that will last into all of our days. May we find the same hope in him who is our help. And this, our Savior, let us pray. Lord, as we come away from Isaiah's testimony of your unlikely deliverance, each of us can look at ourselves and find times in our lives where we feel as if we are portraits ourselves of people who feel hidden from your face. And yet, it's in the moment, Lord, of our greatest sense of hiddenness that you invite us to find refuge in the hidden ways that you display your sovereign salvation. So help us, to be lear- help us learn to be people who wait upon your salvation, who wait upon the display of your holy, awesome, and sovereign ways, that we might be people who forever rest in the grip of your gracious hands, even despite circumstances that would make us think otherwise. It's in Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen. Friends.